0: Amen. Well, good morning. We are, oh, you guys are a little more awake today. This is good. This bodes well for our topic this morning. Again, we are back. Uh, in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we uh, continue to find ourselves as we continue to walk through uh, this letter of 2 Peter, a series that we, if you've not picked up on a general theme, is kind of built around the simple phrase of never forget. Um, We've already talked about how 2 Peter is very similar to 1 Peter, also very similar to Jude, and so there's a lot of commonalities there, and so we see this this great repetition that is beginning to happen, and so today will be no exception. to that um, repetition that we see this morning. So we are back with Peter, Peter who is still writing to the Gentiles in the church, Gentiles who are uh, dealing with persecution, um, Peter writing to them in the midst of their persecution, not just the, the persecution that, again, that he describes in 1 Peter that's coming from the outside world, but this persecution that's now happening from within the church is, again, false teachers have come into a church, come into their church, and have now come to a point where the church is all of a sudden looking around, and after having all these debates and all these arguments and and all this infighting, they're beginning to look around and really begin to wonder where God is during this moment of trial and this moment of tribulation that they are now experiencing. And so in our text this morning, Peter is going to respond by telling the church about the justice that is coming from a just and fair God. And so in our text, Peter is going to want the believers to be assured that help is coming for their trials, because help has already come, according to the word. He also wants the believers to be assured of the fact that for those who continue to profess a false doctrine, for those who continue to to be enemies of God, that punishment is coming for them as well. Now, we today hear these words and we already know uh, that this is good and right and of the Lord because clearly we have the Word of God before us and if you've been reading ahead you kind of already have an idea of where we are going in the text this morning but again like we have been saying uh, week after week repetition is good for the soul so that not only are we committing this to memory but we're committing this to a life of holiness so that we are continuing to grow in our standing of who God is and who we are in light of him but But the reality is this, in knowing that the justice of God is coming and has come, knowing that a punishment will come to those who are enemies of God, it still doesn't make our hardships or our trials or even our tribulations any easier. In fact, I think if we were honest with ourselves this morning, many of us would probably look around at one another and say to one another, if we were truly honest, I know and believe that the justice of God is coming. But the question I have is, when? When is God's justice coming? Some of us have probably seen moments and heard from people who claim to be Christians preaching a false doctrine, and all of a sudden we think, you know, that Old Testament story of of when God opened the earth and just swallowed this person sounds really good. Or better yet, you may be thinking, you know, the story of Jonah, somebody being swallowed by a big fish but instead of vomiting them out, maybe the fish could just carry them across the Atlantic for a little while. We've probably all had those thoughts about someone or something that we're hearing. I mean, literally, you turn on the news if you still watch it, or you turn on social media, unfortunately, and we see more and more attacks. We're hearing about more and more battles, more and more fighting. We hear more and more harsh words being spoken by believers about believers. We hear more and more about sicknesses and and, and new diseases and all of a sudden more shots that we need. We, We see more and more uncertainty. We hear about more and more storms and we hear about more and more attacks on Christianity, not only around the world, but some of the attacks that we are even experiencing within our own country itself. And it's beginning to lead people to ask the question, if God is so good, if God is so loving, then why does God allow innocent people to suffer? Or maybe we've heard the question or had the question ourselves of why do bad things happen to good people? And and not just good people, but why do bad things happen to godly people? And the reality is this, none of these questions are new. Skepticism has been around since the dawn of time. Skepticism has been around for generations, even going back to days mentioned in the Bible. Remember, it was John the Baptist who was locked away in prison, knowing trial was not coming. Death was imminent, sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that we have been waiting for? Are you the one who has come? John, in this moment, was literally asking, are you worth it? I'm in prison waiting to die. Are you the one and are you worth it? In a brief moment, John the Baptist doubted. We go further back into the Old Testament. We even see Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, looking upon God, speaking with God. And what does he do? He questions God. He questions the impending judgment of God, saying, God, if you are real, how do I know? Will your judgment actually take place? You see, a lot of people are asking in this day, if God is so good, if God is so righteous, then shouldn't there be a difference between the way that he treats the righteous versus the way that he treats the wicked? I would argue this morning that that is a great question. But it's the same question that the church was asking during Peter's day. You see, false teachers had come into the church and they were claiming amongst the believers that God's justice did not matter. And they said it didn't matter because the reality is they didn't believe that God was ever coming back in the first place. So why would or why should we care about a God who is just? And so in this moment in our text, Peter responds to the false teachers, and he encourages the church to never forget God's justice. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. We will begin reading in verse 4, and once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Again, this is 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, again, if I could set the scene for you, the false teachers had come into the church and they were teaching that there was no condemnation. And not because there was no condemnation because of the salvation found in Christ. They were saying, hey, listen, there is now no condemnation because there is now no salvation for Jesus Christ was not returning. And so Peter now writes to the church to affirm the teaching that God is fair, he writes to the church to tell them that God is just and thus God will come again to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. In fact, Peter tells us that this clear distinction will be found in how God's judgment, uh, justice will lead to the redemption of the righteous on the final day of judgment. In other words, God is coming again for his people. And so as we look at this text this morning, Peter writes about God's justice that is to come. He writes about God's justice in days past, which should encourage the people to conclude that God's justice can be trusted in the present as he deals with both believers and non-believers. So again, this morning, let's see the call to never forget God's justice, which will be found in God's future justice, his past justice, and present dealings, both with the righteous and the unrighteous. So first, let's begin with this point. God's justice is coming. God's justice is coming. Now, in order to see this particular point, we actually need to step back into a passage that we ended with a week ago to get a better idea, and better picture of God's justice at work. Look with me at the second half of verse 3 of Second Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Notice that Peter tells the church that the day of justice is coming for the false teachers. God has not nodded off into sleep. God has not taken a nap from what's happening in the world. God still sees and God knows. And therefore, as we concluded last week, God is coming to deliver his swift and final justice. But now I want us to pay attention to the word spoken here because what Peter is saying does not mean that God is going to come, slap the false teachers on the hand, wag his finger in their face as if they were children, and say, no, no. He's not doing that. He's not looking at these false teachers as if they were his kids and going, no, no. Don't do that. That's bad. No, the image that Peter gives us is an image of an executioner one who is ever watchful of the false teachers, one who is waiting on the order to execute God's just sentence of their condemnation for speaking the word of God falsely. In other words, when their day of judgment comes, they are not only out of excuses, but they are without excuses. And therefore, on the day of judgment, when God's justice will be revealed, their trial is officially Over and the execution of judgment is coming. You see, there are too many people today who live godless lives and feel that they have the license to be selfish. And they would be wise to to pay attention to these particular words from Peter. You see, like the false teachers they are denying in their sin the coming of God's righteous judgment. And therefore, in the midst of their sin that they refuse to repent of, that they refuse to let go of, in the midst of the division and the derision that they have created, they are now in their sin denying the return of Jesus Christ. And so for these people, they may not think, or they may think, excuse me, that God is not paying attention. They lull themselves into the belief that God is asleep and slumbering. However, according to Peter, his condemnation is upon them. And they would do well to remember the word. In fact, we read in Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4, the psalmist says this, that he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God's condemnation does not sleep. In other words, God has not forgotten his justice. In fact, God's righteous judgment is looming. So, Christians, we have to ask ourselves today do we see God's justice is coming? Do we know people in our lives who, through their unrepentant sins and their lack of faith, will one day stand condemned in the crosshairs of the executioner? And on that day, it will be too late. There will not be a moment where all of a sudden they can say, Well, God, now I see you and I see the error of my ways, therefore I'm ready to repent. That moment will be lost. You see, God's justice is coming. And when it does, Not if, but when it does, it will be swift, it will be severe, and there will be no turning back. So in this first point, Peter is not only writing a word of caution here, but really as believers in Christ, this is a word of good news. Because you see, as those who who belong to Jesus Christ, as those who have found and are a part of Jesus being their Savior and Jesus being their Lord, and they are doing their faithful part in living out their truth, we can rest in knowing that one day our trials are going to come to an end. One day our hardships will be over. One day the mockery of Jesus Christ that we see taking place all over our society, it will come to a swift end. And on that day, his justice will be revealed because it's coming. And this is good news for the believer. Because on that day, our trials will be over. So notice that Peter says that God's justice is coming. But then I want us to notice what else he says about God's justice. Secondly, Peter teaches us that not only is God's justice coming, but God's justice has come. Past tense. Look with me, and we see this in in verses 4 through 8. You see, after opening with the assurance that God's justice is coming one day soon, Peter, at this point, thought it necessary to speak back to God's past track record from his past. And notice in the text that Peter reveals that God's past justice should affirm and assure believers presently that his judgment will come and his judgment will be both fair and just. And Peter does this by illustrating this reality by offering us three Old Testament examples of how God, through history, has consistently punished the unrighteous. But then I want us to notice that not only does God punish the unrighteous, but it's God's justice that will preserve the righteous as well. Look with me in verse four. Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now, pause right there for a moment because this is probably a reference back to Genesis chapter six when the angels fell into direct rebellion against God. But then notice what the text then says, that not only did God not spare them when they sinned, but the very next thing it says, it says, but he cast them into hell. Now, this particular phrase is actually one word in the Greek, and this is actually the only place that it's actually used in the Bible, and it means to consign with Tartarus or to Tartarus. Now, this particular place meant something to people, especially if you knew anything about Greek mythology, because this was a place of punishment for spirits of the most wicked people. Now, for Peter, in choosing this wording, probably did this to give the people a familiar idiom in order to distinguish it from the place of final judgment, which would be similar to how we use the word hell today. But then notice what Peter will then say about these angels. Not only has he cast them into hell, but now he's committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Notice here that Peter suggests that these angels are being held in this place of temporary punishment until the day of final judgment, a day that we read about as you get further into Revelation. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, this particular verse, this particular statement has led to a lot of controversy amongst many scholars about the meaning of Peter's words here. In fact, they have argued with one another and asked questions like this. What did the angels do in order to deserve this punishment? Why why were they being held? Where is this place that they're being held? Now, the reality is this. All of these questions, if we are honest with ourselves, are truly unknown. But they can be worthy of some very interesting conversations. But what I don't want us to miss in the midst of these discussions is Peter's point. Peter is arguing from a greater to lesser argument. Let me unpack what I'm talking about. If great and powerful angels cannot escape the judgment of God, then how much less will mortal men like false teachers be able to escape? If great and powerful angels who rebel against God will be cast into eternal final punishment, what makes us think that false teachers will ever come close to having the power to thwart God and avoid that same fate? You see, God proves his justice from the beginning of time by showing the distinction, even in his judgment, between angels that rebelled and those that did not. We move from there in the verse 5, and Peter gives us a second example of God's justice in the story of Noah and the flood that obliterated the vast majority of the earth's inhabitants. A story that's found back in Genesis chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 8, to be honest with you. Now, again, a lot of us hear of the story of Noah, And maybe you grew up in a day and a time where you remember walking a children's hall and you remember seeing a massive boat that we called an an ark. And then all of a sudden there was was Noah, there was his family, they were all happy. There was animals hanging out the window, they were all happy. There were fish in the water, there were bigger fish in the water, and they were all happy. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, in my morbid mind, when I read the Bible and I saw that picture, I asked this question, where were all the bodies? There should have been a lot of floating people. We're missing a part of that story. We're missing the the judgment part of that story. We're missing the part where God literally obliterated the majority of the earth's inhabitants. Okay? Not not hurricane-type obliteration where we get a little bit of water on our first floor. I mean, we're talking no land. Everything gone. And then notice what Peter says. Peter says in the text, Verse 5, he says, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, a key phrase in this particular passage is the phrase, did not spare. Now, there are two realities that we can learn from this particular phrase, did not spare. The first being this, the judgment of God is indeed a reality. It's a reality that's coming. There's no escaping The judgment of God. Second reality we learn based on the story of Noah is this. Any hope is eliminated that God might show mercy and change his mind about judging the world. In other words, his judgment is coming. And his decision is final. There will be no change. You see, like the sinning angels, God did not spare an entire generation that rebelled against him, but rather he exercised his righteous judgment on them by flooding the entire earth. But then notice what happens here. Not only does Peter identify uh, this part of his judgment and this part of his wrath, which sounds pretty bad when you look at the, the bodies and the angels that didn't get spared, but notice what happens here. Peter identifies the other side of God's judgment as well, which is God's protection of the righteous. Notice again in the text, he says, But he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others. Now again, in in reminding of this story, Peter's taking us back to the fact that the protection of Noah and his family is actually foreshadowing of the gospel of grace and the gospel of hope that God provides through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. Now notice here that, that Peter mentions Noah as a herald of righteousness. Now, in saying this phrase, he's not not making a reference to the fact that Noah was being justified by God because of his service to God. This was not not a moment where Noah said, hey, God, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not at all what's going on here. But rather what Peter is telling us is, look, you can tell the difference between a righteous and obedient person and that of an unrighteous person in how they serve versus how they don't serve our God. You see, those who are faithful to the word will also faithfully serve God, and they will stand out in a world that seeks to destroy God and make a mockery of him. But then Peter continues in the text. Not only was Noah a herald of righteousness, being faithful and obedient to God's call, but then notice that it was God who not only preserved Noah, but he preserved Noah with seven others. Now, okay, simple story. We know this is Noah and his family. But here's the significance of why Peter made this point. Peter wanted the church to understand that the godly, the righteous, are most often in the minority. Can I just say something in in faith to you? I recognize that our society is going more and more the secular route. And we begin to question more and more, where are the Christians? Well, can I just encourage you from from Peter for just a moment here and also other places in the word? More often than not, being a Christian means you're going to be in the minority. More often than not, you're going to find yourself in a place, a workplace, a school, and you're going to find yourself that, that most people around you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And so you're going to be in the minority. Many of you... Take a step further, many of us are going to find ourselves around other people who who call themselves Christians, but they don't faithfully read the word. They don't faith, they're not faithful in obedience to God. They don't faithfully find themselves as a part of a local church. They don't even faithfully find themselves saying anything about Jesus Christ. In fact, you would probably never even know they were Christians. And in those moments, even bold, faithful Christians who are obedient to the word Will find themselves in the minority. I just love what Douglas Moose says about this point. He says, although the godly are often fewer in numbers, God is always faithful to preserve them. And Christian, this really should be a comforting thought for us this morning. Yes, it's true. We may find ourselves in the minority. Yes, it's true that we may find fewer and fewer people who believe in the Word of God, the inerrant and infallible Word of God. We may look around and all of a sudden one day see churches, churches that we thought were like-minded churches, all of a sudden turn away from the truth of the Word of God. And yet in those moments, as believers in Christ, we cannot grow weary of towing the line of righteousness in a world that stands in the path of God's condemnation. As Christians, we cannot grow weary of proclaiming the impending judgment that awaits the unrepentant and the grace and the hope and the mercy that can be found in knowing and professing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. As Christians today, we cannot grow impatient waiting on what we believe is now the delayed return of Jesus Christ. Yes, it may not have happened on our timetable. It may not have happened in this moment. That would have been awesome if it happened. Wouldn't that have been great? It didn't. That's disappointing. But you know what? It's not up to my timetable. Only God knows. And his timing Is perfect. So, can I encourage you from Peter's word, Christian? It's this do not lose hope. As we see in the story of Noah, God not only punished the wicked, but it is God who also protects the righteous. So, keep standing on the truth of the word of God and continue to resist false teaching. In other words, remain faithful and obedient even when the world turns away. But notice that Peter is not done. We get to verses 6 through 8, and Peter now gives us the third and really lengthiest example of God's justice in this passage. It's actually seen uh, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the story that we see back in Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. Now again, to give you the cliff notes version of this story, um, really, really amazing story. They probably should make a movie out of it, to be quite honest with you. Uh, But powerful story. Here's what happened. City in deep sin, Okay. Everybody is together, city in deep sin. None were found in the city to be righteous except Lot and his family. So Lot and his family are visited. They're told to leave. Again, short version. And this is what God does. God sends in his angels to torch and burn the ground and sentence the city to never be rebuilt again. Okay, so hear me on this because we're not talking about a simple destruction of a city. Okay, a lot of people think of destruction of a city and we think all of a sudden, well, if a city is destroyed, it can be rebuilt. Jerusalem was destroyed. It was rebuilt. Okay, Rome was destroyed. It can be rebuilt. Cities were destroyed throughout World War II and guess what? They were rebuilt. But that's not what God does with Sodom and Gomorrah. He torches them. He burns the city to the ground, turning everything to ash, and then sentences the city to never be rebuilt again. Ultimate destruction. And then Peter says in verse 6, and making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Notice what Peter is highlighting here. He's highlighting the fact that God's Condemnation is a warning for all who follow false teachers. And he says this, and the destruction of these cities should serve as a reminder of what happens to those who live godless lives. They will be torched. They will be burned. They will be destroyed. And in no way will they ever be rebuilt. The doctrine of regeneration is gone at the judgment seat of God. There is no opportunity when you're at that moment. But again, notice what Peter does. In the midst of this destruction, in the midst of this smoldering ash, in the midst of this this city that will never be rebuilt, the the, the horror that is Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice that Peter again shows proof that God in his justice will not only condemn the unrighteous, but he will protect his own people. Verse 7, he says, And if he rescued righteous Lot. Now, speaking more to Lot's, uh, and speaking of this passage of Lot being righteous, he's actually speaking more to Lot's obedience to God in his final judgment on these cities. In other words, God came, sent his angels, told Lot to get out, Lot leaves. Okay? He's gone. That's obedience, right? So here's Peter's point in the story of Lot and Noah. He's not setting up these men as examples of justification before God, but rather he's giving evidence that God is perfectly able to punish the ungodly while at the same time saving those who are righteous. In fact, in verse 8, he says it. He says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So notice what Peter's acknowledging here. Peter's acknowledging that the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, the people, their actions and their words, their immersion in sin was beginning to wear down the righteousness of Lot. And so in Lot's worn down state is all of a sudden when God came in, And God rescued. Now, don't miss Peter's point. Okay? Peter is not saying this. He's not saying, look, Christians, God is simply waiting on you and waiting on me to get worn out. Okay? We've all been there a time or two or five. We've all been worn out. We have all wanted to see justice played out upon people who speak ill against God. Sometimes in the raising of our own children and teaching them what is just and what is fair, we may have thought, God, if you could sprinkle a little justice on my child right now, I might be okay with that. Maybe your discipline is better than mine. We have all had some sort of desire where in the midst of watching someone in their sin, we want to say to them, God, do something about that. I mean, it's really easy. You speak it, the earth opens, they're swallowed. You speak it, fish jumps out of the water. They're gone. I'm okay. Massive storm comes. We all get rain. Our grass is happy. But one wind cloud, one tunnel, one funnel, one tornado wipes out their home and takes them off somewhere, not Oz. We're good. No, that's not what Peter's saying, though. Peter's saying, listen, we're going to get worn out as believers. But what I want you to hear from Peter is this, is as a church, we shouldn't give up. As a church, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of our heartaches, in the midst of our frustrations, Peter's saying, listen, don't throw your hands up and surrender. Now's not the time. We're still fighting. In fact, if you're going to do anything, believers, this is what Peter's saying. He's like, hey, keep running away from godlessness. Do not let your faith become dulled by the wickedness that is around us or the sins that we are now exposed to. Guard yourself and watch yourself and and what it is that you're hearing, what it is that you're seeing, what it is that you're watching. Spend more time seeing, reading, watching, understanding the word. Because you see, Christian, there's going to be times where we are going to get worn down. There are going to be people who come into our lives, and they're going to attempt to tear us apart. They're going to attempt to divide us in any way, shape, or form they possibly can. And so here is Peter's reminder. He's saying, listen, Christian, remember that God has a spotless track record of protecting his people during trials and during tribulations. So seeing God at work in the past... Should encourage us to remember God's justice now. He has done it before, He said he will do it again, and he will do it again, which leads us to our third and final point, and that's found in verses nine and the first half of verse ten, which is this, God's justice not only is coming, God's justice has come. And now point number three, God's justice is here. Now notice what Peter does here. Peter now draws to a close what's become a rather large if-then statement. And so here is Peter's point from the text. He's saying, listen, if God in his justice can both punish the wicked and preserve the righteous in the past, we've seen it, we know it, he's done it. And if God says that he is still watching and God says that he is coming again because of these things, we now know that God can be trusted to do it again in this present life. In other words, Peter knew and understood that the readers of this letter were beginning to grow weary and grow frustrated with the false teachers, so he turns their attention to reminding them of God's sovereign help during their trials in this present moment. Notice verse 9. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now there's two words I want to highlight right here in this particular passage. The first one being rescue, which is similar to what he did for Lot. It's similar to the protection that he did for Noah and his family and what they experienced at the flood. But then there's a second word I want us to see, and it's the word from. You see, this word from also means out of instead of away from. Now, this is important wording from Peter because we need to understand, according to Peter, that God will never tempt us to sin. However. God never promises to protect us, listen, to protect us from ever facing trials. We are going to face trials. It is going to happen. And so what Peter is saying is this, in the midst of the trials, it is God who will protect us, not from the trial, but rather will protect us by providing grace that is sufficient Sufficient for every trial that we will face. You're dealing with some sort of some sort of frustration today. Guess what? God's grace is still sufficient. You're frustrated with someone today. Guess what? God's grace is still sufficient. He can forgive you. He can forgive them. You're dealing with some sort of some sort of ailment, some sort of uh, some sort of diagnosis that you've been dealing with. Guess what? God is still sovereign over that, and His grace is still sufficient. Even at the point on our deathbeds, we are gonna be able to say, even now, God's grace is sufficient because I'm going home in glory. We are going to face trials. We are going to face hardships. We are going to face sickness. We are going to face death. But it's God who knows how to rescue us either through his healing power in the moment or through his divine healing that happens as he calls us home. Christians never forget that God's grace is sufficient for us today. So here's Peter writing and hoping to protect the believers from ever doubting their faith. He's writing in hopes of protecting them from ever falling further and further into sin. And so he does this by reminding them that God is faithful, that his grace is sufficient, and it's God who will protect his his children when temptation comes. Now, again, if you're not hearing what Peter is saying, this is a powerful imagery of the gospel. Jesus didn't save us because we were all clean. Jesus didn't save us because we were pretty. Jesus didn't save us because we were awesome and we had these incredible work skills like like throwing yourself up on a roof and resealing it so the office wouldn't leak. God God didn't save us because you figured out a way to get old chairs out of a building super fast. None of you know what I'm talking about except those few who were here with us yesterday. You missed a sight yesterday, by the way. And I'm going to protect the names of the innocent at this point. But it was efficient. Our faith may take some bumps and bruises. Our faith may take some hits. We, we may have days, can I say this to you and, and just say it in freedom? We will have days where we will question and doubt our own faith. It's going to happen. And you'll be like, oh no, pastor, that'll never happen to me. Oh, really? Have you never gotten up on a Sunday morning and asked yourself, God, why am I going back to this place today? Be careful. Your faith is taking a hit. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus Christ loves us in spite of our scars. He loves us in spite of our pain. And all we had to do was act on faith in light of what it is that Christ has done. We found him because he found us through grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, by the scriptures alone. This is a powerful love story, and Peter is reminding the church of that love story. Now notice what happens next in the text. He says this, he says, and to keep the unrighteous until punishment, until the day of judgment. Peter circles back and not only goes from the righteous and being uh, preserved, but now he goes back to the unrighteous and he says, these people have chosen their own way. And now God has turned them over to their own path that will lead to destruction. And the place that will be held is not purgatory, but rather they are going to be held for the final judgment. In other words, Peter tells us that those who are unrighteous, who reject God, are doomed for torment. And then he doubles down on it in verse 10. He says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Now notice this. Notice that Peter points out that those who reject God through immorality will be condemned. Condemned but he takes it one step further and he says this, and also those who reject the authority of the word of God, those who reject the authority of the gospel, those who reject the authority of the local church, those who reject the authority of the local church leadership, and those who reject the authority of God through their rejection of all these other authorities. Now we may say, listen, this sounds incredibly harsh, but I want us to remember something. Peter is talking about the false teachers. They had already taken all of these steps. They had already rejected Jesus Christ. They had already rejected the second coming of Christ. They had already rejected condemnation and salvation. They had already rejected the authority of the local church leadership. They had already rejected the idea of the gathered body of believers gathering for the purpose of worship. They were endorsing sensuality. We've already talked about this. They were already there. And so Peter wanted the church to be warned of the destruction that awaits those who are false teachers, but at the same time to serve as some sort of checkup for us as believers. You see, we as Christians today should desire the word of God. And not just desire it, but follow it. We should be praying for and desiring biblical leadership and not just praying for and desiring it, but following biblical leaders when God gives them to us. We should not only be following the call to be a part of the local church, but desiring to be a part of the local church. We're not here out of obligation. We're not here because we have to be here. We're here because we desire it. We as Christians who want to be faithful to the word of God should desire to to remove sin from our lives. As John Owen said in the mortification of sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That should be our desire. Why? Because according to Peter, this is what the righteous do. And so Peter warns the church to avoid false teachers and to hold fast to Christ. Because his judgment is coming, and Peter says it, not only is his judgment coming, his judgment is here. Christians, do we see it today? God's justice is coming. In fact, his justice has already come before, and and whether we want to believe it or not now, his justice is here now, and here's the reality. God will not hold back. So as Christians, let's be sure to stand as as one who is found to be righteous and avoid the lies of false teachers. God is ever present. His justice is at work now. So let's see in it the grace that is offered to us in the midst of our trials. And that grace is found in the hope that we have in what is to come as we walk through whatever hardships may come our way. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you and be the first to admit, talking about God's justice and, and eternal punishment and the righteous versus the unrighteous, man, this is not an easy pill to swallow. It's really not. But God's judgment and his condemnation is real, it's necessary, because it's all rooted in his justice. God will give the ungodly exactly what it is that they deserve, and at the same time, those who are righteous righteous, will find themselves in eternity with King Jesus. There is no in-between. And that's the beauty of the grace of the gospel. That thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our Lord. We are the ones who are redeemed. Jesus Christ has taken on the judgment and the wrath of God on our behalf. And so God's justice has been ransomed through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is why we take communion week in and week out to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. So in the midst of a world that's sinking under the weight of false teaching that leads to rebellion against God as believers, faithful witnesses, let us continue to be bold in our faith, to share truth boldly, and to pursue righteousness. In the midst of our trials, like the church that Peter writes to, may we never forget God's justice and the grace that is found and the perseverance that he has offered. Thanks be to God for what he has done for his redeemed. Let's pray together.